0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. You're doing fine. Um, Some of you may have walked in today and you're like, Christmas stuff, why do we still have Christmas stuff? Are we just really lazy as a church? (laughs) Unlike those pagans over at the Hallmark Channel, as for us Christians, uh, Christmas is a whole season. Christmas is not just one day. Maybe you know of the 12 days of Christmas. On the first day, my true love gave to me a second day, third day, and so on. (laughs) So, so something. Lots of birds. She's, she's a bird aficionado, uh, whoever my true love is, and she gives me a lot of birds, uh, which, you know. Did anybody get any birds for Christmas, John? Anything? Did you get any cool? Oh, you got binoculars? Oh, you saw a lot of birds. Any new ones? What'd you see? John's a, John's a bird aficionado. Mm. that's congratulations (laughs) that is the greatest gift so if you have any bird questions go and talk to John Uh, he's been a wonderful resource to me over the years Um, So today is Epiphany. Today is the last day of the Christmas season. You know, we kind of moved through this season of Advent, which is a time of preparing for the coming of Jesus. And we looked at these major themes of hope, Of peace, of joy, and then of love itself. And then kind of now we're on the other side, but we're looking at, you know, already the ripple effect of the kingdom of God breaking out into the world through the baby Jesus. And one of the things that is so profound to me looking at the Christmas story as we're beginning to tell Jesus's story all over again in our church calendar um, is that there's so much that's happening around Jesus in the beginning of his story. And he has so much authority even without doing or saying anything. And even on Christmas, that's what we were talking about, that, that even that babies carry this rare form of authority that arrests the energy in the room that draws us in or repels us depending on how we handle the authority that's present in innocence and purity. And so we're continuing on uh, with that telling of the Christmas story, but we're going to be looking at something that happened after Jesus's birth, especially through the eyes of uh, the wise men or sometimes called the three kings. But what is Epiphany itself? Epiphany is the culmination of the Christmas story. It's the last day of the Christmas season. It's the culmination of the Christmas story that God offers the gift of his presence to all of us, that the gift of Jesus is not just for the Jews, it is for us as well. And so today we commemorate the visit of the Magi, um, which is actually the first mention of Gentiles in the Christmas story. This is really uh, important for us to recognize. How many of you are Gentiles? Or you know a Gentile? Or you love a Gentile? It's really important. And Matthew, we're going to be reading from Matthew today that he right up front kind of gives us this little lens into what's going to happen. What is this new reality of God that's called the kingdom that breaks through in the person of Jesus? What does this mean? Not just for God's people in terms of the Jews, but for all of us pagans uh, that we've been drawn into the story. And so we can, in a way, see the Magi are our spiritual ancestors. They're kind of the doorway by which all the rest of us are invited into the Christmas story and I love this uh, this story uh, because the the traditions that we have all over the world uh, kind of vary in terms of how people have accepted this as part of the Christmas narrative you know for many of us in North America we give gifts on Christmas Day and that's kind of about it maybe you go to a church that celebrates Epiphany but mostly it's over December 26th you pack everything up and you're done um, but in like Latin America, for example, today is the day that a lot of little children would get their gifts. In a lot of places in South America, you'd put your shoes out and then the wise men come and they bring gifts and they put them in your shoes. Anybody grow up? Or a shoe box? In Puerto Rico, it's a shoebox. Okay. A box of some kind. And they would put straw in there for the wise men's camels in the way that, you know, we might put out a carrot for uh, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, whatever it might be. And this was the day that was all about gifts. It was about bringing gifts to the little children as this recognition that it's the same as the Magi bringing gifts for Jesus. So we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 2 at the first 12 verses. Uh, you can read along. It's going to be up on the screen. I'm kind of breaking it down into two parts, uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 8, and then we're going to look at 9 through 12. And the, the beginning bit is about this search. <clears throat> Let me clear my throat. Aha, aha. Ready, ready? So you get that. Let me clear my, aha, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. Some of you are too young to know that. Let's go to the scriptures. Actually, let's pray first. I'm getting ahead of myself. New year, new me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us. Uh, Lord, I celebrate every single thing that you have done in this season for each of us individually, for us communally, uh, for us as the people of God and for the whole world. Lord, I pray that we would never, ever take for granted the Christmas story, that we have these moments to be able to, to kind of tune back in, not just to remember something that you did 2,000 years ago, uh, but to recall that, to bring that truth into the present moment, to come to it with this open sense of expectation that you still have something to reveal to us there. There's still something for us to discover, to, to experience anew. And that's why we're here today, Lord, because we want to experience you in a whole new way that opens us up to the reality of who you are, that changes us from the inside out. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Matthew 2, beginning in the first verse. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, And so in the beginning of the story, we have all of these characters, and it's really important that we kind of break it down and look at how each person in this story that's mentioned is kind of hovering around this new reality of God. As I said, you know, so much of the Christmas story is it's, it's the energy around Jesus that we have to pay attention to because it speaks to the way in which we approach him. Before we can really talk about what Jesus is like, we have to talk about our own hearts, our own postures of how it is that we're seeking after him. Because I think this is what is so poignant about the beginning of this story, that everyone is looking for a Messiah. But why? We're all looking for a Messiah. We're all looking for a King. We're all looking for a Savior in some way. We're looking for answers. We're looking for meaning. But it's the why that's so imperative for us to look at, especially through the story of the Magi. And so, I want to look at some of the main players in the beginning of this story and examining why are they looking for the Messiah? Because perhaps their posture and how they're receiving the gift of Jesus maybe speaks to some of us, and how we perhaps approach Jesus in our attitudes towards looking for him. And so we begin with King Herod. He's called Herod the Great. At this point, Rome has come in, has taken over the land of Judea. They're an occupied territory. They had uh, an ounce of freedom for about 100 years. You know, if you know the story of Israel, you know they were constantly being conquered by bigger empires. And they were always in subversion to somebody else. Somebody else was in charge. Somebody else was calling the shots. Somebody else was laying down laws and taxing them and all of this. And there was about 100 years after a revolution where they had independence and they had freedom and they had their own kings set up again. And then it all came crashing down when the Roman Empire came in and swept Israel in about 60 BC. And then they decided they were going to establish their own king. And Herod the Great was a a Jewish soldier. He was tenacious. He was strong. He was a powerful leader. And he was easily bought out by the Roman Empire. And so they, they set him up and his dynasty, the family of Herod, to be kind of a puppet king. He has some power and privilege, but mostly he works at the pleasure of the emperor. And so we find this, this posture that Herod has when he hears that the Messiah, which was a very loaded word, when you hear Messiah, it literally means anointed one. But if you know the story, you know that people who are anointed usually become kings. And not only just they become kings because the people said so, they become kings because God said so. And so Herod is looking for a Messiah, but not because he's taking up the promises that were spoken over his people in generations past, that God was going to deliver them and establish a king, because he's already the king, and he's been already established by another God, Caesar is his name. And so Herod becomes threatened by the idea that the Messiah has finally been born because this Messiah, this king, this anointed one, is going to call into question the authority that Herod has. Herod likes his posture of power. He's okay with selling out to the Roman Empire, selling out his own people if it means that he gets some semblance of privilege and authority He's okay with a counterfeit form of power if it serves him and his family, and it gives him the kind of lifestyle that he's afforded. So Herod is looking for a Messiah, but not because he wants deliverance, because he's threatened, and he needs to get rid of that threat as soon as possible. And so the story goes on. It says when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So not only is the king current king, the, the counterfeit king, the puppet king, threatened by the possibility that God is establishing a new kingdom in his midst. But it says all of Jerusalem with him. And so why would Jerusalem, the city itself, have this kind of fear? Because if Herod is the counterfeit king, Jerusalem is kind of the counterfeit center of culture in the day. It's being ruled over by the Roman Empire. But as much power and authority as the Jews have is found in Jerusalem, it's much like our own capital of Washington, D.C. It's the center of culture, of politics, of religion. All the movers and shakers are living in this city. It's the epicenter of Jewish culture. You know, my my brother lives in D.C. and he says, everybody in that city is there for a purpose, to feed the beast. Everybody there, everybody are interns and they work for the Democrats or the Republicans or non-governmental organizations like my brother does. Everybody is there with this very clear purpose that they're feeding into the system. That's what, you know, that Washington, D.C. is. And Jerusalem was just like that in the first century when Jesus was born. It was the epicenter of politics, religion, culture. Everything Jewish comes in and out of that place. And so why would Jerusalem feel threatened by the presence of a new king? Why would Jerusalem be so disturbed by the possibility that God is stirring up, that God is delivering on his promises to bring his anointed king, his anointed messiah? I think it's perhaps what we find today in our own culture, that Jerusalem fears the upending of the status quo. Jerusalem thrives on the system working the way that it does now. Everybody in the city likes the way that it works because it works in their favor. They have power, they have privilege, they have money, they have authority. And if there's a new king that God is establishing that's not already part of the system, that's not already part of the status quo, well, then things are going to change. And I think that's so often what happens is, yes, maybe we're looking for a Messiah, but we're more threatened by the possibility of what the authority of Jesus might call us into, that it might break up systems that work in the favor of the powerful and the privileged. That perhaps the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus as God's true king, means that the system that works for us might have to be shaken up a little bit because God has something bigger in mind. And so Jerusalem fears the upending of the status quo because the system as it currently stands works for them. And so Herod calls together. He says, the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he asked them, where, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? Where is this anointed one? And so they do what they do. They go to the scriptures and they say, well, it looks like it's supposed to be this little town of Bethlehem, which is, you know, about 10 miles uh, away from Jerusalem, almost like a little suburb. Um, and they are able to properly read their scriptures in order to find out where this Messiah is. The fascinating thing about the teachers of the law is that they know the answers, They know how to read the scriptures, they know how to interpret when this this event is supposed to happen and where it's supposed to happen, but yet they make no move to go and to find Jesus, to find the Messiah. And so if Herod and Jerusalem are kind of looking for a Messiah because they're threatened that the Messiah might call into question the system that they participate in, I think that the teachers of the law they recognize on some level, they have the answers right in front of them. They know what God looks like. They know what God is going to do in the world, but they can't be bothered to actually pursue intimacy with him. As I said a couple weeks ago, information does not mean transformation. And a lot of times for us, there's a counterfeit form of intimacy that's, if I know a lot of stuff, if I have all the answers, if I can read my Bible real good, If I listen to the right podcasts or if I do all the right Bible studies, then that's basically the same thing as what God is calling me to in intimacy. And I wonder if the teachers of the law, because they're part of that system that works for them, have forgotten that intimacy and information are not the same thing. That just knowing about God doesn't actually stir up something in their hearts to go and to seek and to find him, but they're content just to sit in their schools, to sit in their ivory towers and to look over the information but not actually make the move to, to discover him for themselves, to go and to find the Christ child, the infant God, and to actually enter into relationship with him and worship him. So you can already see it's, it's all of the people that should have the right answers that miss it. It's all the people that we would assume would be the first ones to jump in line to find the Messiah that actually sit back, either because they're threatened by what that Messiah might cost them, or they just can't be bothered because they've, they've, they're so dull down to the story. And then we find the Magi, and they're absolutely fascinating. We call them the kings. We call them wise men. And it says they're wise men from the east. And who are they? The Magi are, they're outsiders. They're not part of God's family. They're not part of God's story. They're they're pagans, potentially they're Zoroastrians or some other sort of Eastern religion. They shouldn't be the ones that are stirred up to go and to find God. But we find in them... That there's something in their discovery of the Messiah that has awed them enough to come and to look for God. And what we think about them is they're probably not royalty in the sense of what we're talking about with Herod or even with Caesar, but they're probably like astrologers or astronomers from the east, from Persia and other areas um, that have been able to read the signs. There's even one legend that I really love, that they're actually the descendants of the astrologers that interacted with Daniel in the time of the exile, several hundred years, about 400 years prior, and that is Daniel taught in, uh, in the court, of the Persian royalty that these guys were listening to him and they were kind of handed the Hebrew scriptures. And even as Israel comes back out of exile, they leave behind their own scriptures. And so these guys, the descendants, they had the stories, they had the scriptures, but they're humble and open enough to be able to read them, to do something about it. And so these outsiders, these pagans, these heathens, they're the first ones to actually heed the call and to come and to find out what it is that God is now doing in the world. You see, even at the beginning, Matthew wants us to know this story is not for the privileged few. This story is not just for the people that you think it would be for. This story is actually for everybody, it's for all of us to enter in. We cannot take it for granted that we come from the right family, that we have the right bloodline that we have the right scriptures. None of that really matters when it comes down to us seeking out the Messiah. Is God's presence to you a gift or a means to an end? Why do you seek him? Why did you come here this morning? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you call yourself a Christian if you use that name? Is it because God's presence, the, the intimacy offered by his presence is a precious gift to you that you want more? Or do you see Jesus as a means to an end? Do you use Jesus to kind of prop up your social structures? Because it gives you a certain amount of privilege or power. Sometimes our comfortability with the way our lives work and the way that culture works, keeps God in our pocket. We take for granted the world that we live in, the society we live in. It all kind of works in our favor and every once in a while we'll bring God out of our pocket because God is just reinforcing what we already believe about ourselves. And so he's a means to an end. We use God, he's an object that kind of bolsters us, yes, we're okay, we're good, we're on the inside, we're doing everything as we should be. And sometimes we avoid God by knowing lots of things about him. We avoid our beloved by pretending to know lots of stuff about them. Information is not intimacy. In short, We can so often have this spirit of cynicism when it comes to our approach to Jesus, either because he works for us or because we can't be bothered to really pursue intimacy with him. And I think the Magi then are this invitation for us to really examine before we even come to Jesus why are we doing it? What is our approach? What is our attitude? And how do we maintain that innocent outsider perspective that we see in the Magi? How do we come to Jesus without pretense, without an agenda that we need him to meet, without a list of stuff that we need him to do to prove to us that he is who he really says he is, that we come and we begin that intimate journey with God through worship? What is the quality that we see in the Magi? that we need to see in ourselves humility is the only quality necessary to meet Jesus as he truly is humility is the only quality necessary Herod Jerusalem the teachers of the law they were prideful they liked things the way that they were they took for granted that God worked for them and their system and their power and their privilege But these magi, these these astrologers from the East, these pagans came to God without any sense of pretense. Yes, they saw the signs. They kind of read the stars. They, They read the scriptures. But they came not to get something out of him, not to offer Jesus their list of demands to live a better life. But they came to worship him. There's an old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. Or as one theologian specifically said about Scripture, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. You know, Perhaps we're so familiar with the Christmas story that we can no longer read it. We're so familiar with Jesus or how we think he is that we can no longer see him. There's not this vivacious invitation to relationship with him because we take for granted that we already know him that we already know who we're talking about. And before long, we find ourselves in contempt of the Christmas story. We find ourselves in contempt of God, and we miss the invitation for what he's trying to do. And I know this all too well as a teacher of scripture. I'm gonna let you in on something. I'm pretty good at reading the Bible. I'm, you know, I took a class in college. Many of you know I got an art education degree, which of course is necessary if you're gonna be a pastor. And I took one class on New Testament. We actually, one of our finals was we had to take one verse in Scripture, and we had to write this 15-page paper about it, and you had to go through all of these different exegetical analyses. And I chose, uh, I think it was Revelation nine twelve. 12, I saw a star fall from heaven, it was given the keys to the gate of the abyss. You know, just normal Bible stuff. And I wrote this 15-page paper about the evolution of the idea of Satan through Scripture and how it's compared in Jewish and, 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 and Muslim and, and, you know, Christian imagery after that. And I handed it in a little bit early because I was so excited. And my professor goes, this is a really great paper, and it is not at all what I was asking for. And it's like, okay, sorry. And so I had to rewrite a 15-page paper in like two days on that. I, I know, I know, I feel this. So when I read this story, I n- not necessarily do I see myself in Herod or Jerusalem, but I definitely see myself in the teachers of the law. That I confuse information with intimacy. That for me just to know a lot of stuff about him is basically the same as me following him. And I want you to understand that study is incredibly valuable. Learning how to read the Bible is incredibly powerful. Reading books, my goodness, Christians should be readers. Absolutely. But not if those things are a counterfeit form to intimacy. Not if us believing that what we know is actually a replacement for knowing him. And I wonder if many of us at the beginning of this year As the Christmas story begins to transition into the next chapter of the church calendar, we need an honest refreshing of who Jesus is. That we're so familiar with him that we're unfamiliar. And that unfamiliarity has perhaps bred a sense of contempt, that we take him for granted. So, what do we do? when we step into that innocent, outsider, humble perspective of the Magi, that we're coming to meet Jesus as he truly is. This is what we find in the continuation of the story, that what is it that the Magi bring with them to the infant Jesus? And we continue reading in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went again ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... open-handed, open-hearted, humble posture, we just want to meet him as he is. We want to experience him as he truly is, not with our agendas or what we, our list of demands, but we just want to worship him. We want to ascribe to him this immeasurable worth because we already see there's something there that this God of the Jews is doing for the whole world. And so it says they come and they worship him, and they lay these gifts at his feet. And these three gifts are prophetic pronouncements of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And these three pronouncements who come, these three major themes through the gospel story, especially in the gospel of Matthew. First of all, we find the gift of gold. And gold, this this is a gold vein, which I just thought was really cool. You can see the scale there. It's two millimeters. So whatever. I don't know what that means. Could have erased that, but I don't know. Whatever. But gold was this symbol of royalty. Gold was a symbol of the king. It's refined. It's regal. It has a sense of power and authority to it. And so for them to bring gold was to recognize that Jesus is the king. Again, that the word Messiah, it literally means anointed one, but it specifically means the king. That it's saying this person who has the gold Is the king and so there's this prophetic announcement over this infant born in this small town that's a suburb of the capital city under the shadow of the Empire says this is the king this is the true king this is the true Messiah the second gift is frankincense frankincense is is a resin that's kind of ground down into dust and is and is made into an oil and, it, and, you know, we've used incense in here, perhaps use it at home. Incense was always, it's two things. So first of all, that it, incense is kind of one of the accoutrements of a priest. It's one of the things that a priest uses to call people into worship. And so there is an element of offering Jesus frankincense that's saying he's going to be a priest. But not just for Israel, he's going to be a priest for all nations. You know, the writer of Hebrews really beautifully kind of expands this idea of Jesus being the final high priest who makes the sacrifice on behalf of all of us. But I think there's actually a deeper truth to the idea of giving the baby Jesus incense. That not only is he a priest, but the priests used incense to reveal the divinity or the deity of God. If you ever see, you know, incense smoke rising, it was the smoke that's this kind of visual image of the invisible, was this representation, like here's God, He's with us. And so in the tabernacle, later in the temple, the priests would burn incense as a symbol, God is with us. And so not only is the Magi giving Jesus the, the frankincense a symbol of his royal priesthood, but it's also a symbol of his divinity, that he is God, that he is the tangible visual representation of what God is like. And this is what I love about our beautiful and unchanging God that God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. We didn't always know that. But with the advent of the infant Jesus, now we do. And if you ever, ever want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus first. If you ever, he is, that's the number one best picture of what God really looks like, is in Jesus. And so it's the divinity of Jesus that becomes the lens by which we look at God. And the third and final gift is myrrh. Myrrh is another kind of, of tree resin that's, that's excavated and is ground down. And, and myrrh has a lot of different uses in the ancient world. It has a lot of health benefits. It's used in healing, but especially myrrh was used in embalming in, in dead bodies. Herbs and spices and myrrh and some other things were kind of put together to embalm a body before it was wrapped up and to be placed into a tomb. And so there's a prophetic pronouncement over the infant Jesus that he's going to die. And so we've seen that Jesus is a king because of gold. He's not only a priest, but he's God incarnate through the frankincense, but he's going to die with the myrrh. In John 19, it mentions that Joseph of Arimathea and a few others kind of pooled together their resources and they bought 100 pounds of myrrh to embalm the body of Jesus before they put it into the tomb. And so this prophecy, this symbol given to the infant Jesus says he's going to die, but that is the way by which he is going to save the world. And it's not the way that if Jesus was only a king, that's not the way that we would assume he was going to save the world. If he was just a priest or even God, the the idea of God dying, it's counterintuitive. It's ridiculous. It doesn't fit in our status quo understanding of how the world works. But there was something about the infant Jesus that even then, these astrologers, these outsiders, these pagans, these heathens were able to see him and to say, yes, he's going to die. But somehow, mysteriously, through that death, he's going to save the world. And so without any pretense, without any sense of an agenda, these magi come to Jesus, they worship him, and they offer him these three prophetic gifts. I think the challenge for us then is, do you offer Jesus your best gifts as worship of who he really is? Do you come to him acknowledging who he really is, who he reveals himself to be? Or do you offer him your gifts and kind of this pay-to-play, hoping that if you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, if you follow all the rules, if you do all the right things, if you perform adequately, then maybe he'll give you something. Maybe you can buy your salvation from him. I think this is what is so powerful about this. Firstly, you have something within you now that you can lay at his feet. You have something within you in who you are right now that you can lay down at the feet of Jesus that acknowledges him as your king, as your God, and as your savior. There's something in you. There's something in your personality. There's something in the incredible story that you have already lived, and there's something in the future story that you are going to conspire with him. And there is something in your spiritual gifts that you can lay down at the feet of Jesus as a sense of worship, of who he really is. You have something to offer. You, don't come, you never come to Jesus empty-handed. There's always something for you to give him that ascribes to him the worth that he has in your life. And this is so, what, what's so beautiful when you come to him and you lay this down. As you humbly lay down your gifts as worship, Jesus will reveal himself to you in new ways. Are you sitting here this morning and you're dried up? You're disillusioned. You feel like you're so familiar with Jesus that he has nothing more to offer you. Well, I want to challenge you that perhaps the way to gain a new understanding to allow Jesus to reveal himself to you all over again, to be woken up to the beauty of our God and Savior is to worship him is to offer him your gifts, to lay them at his feet, to lay down your story, to lay down yourself, to lay down your talents, whatever it is, to give over your whole self to him and to see if he is not faithful, to reveal to you who he is in a way that brings you back to life. We're gonna transition in just a moment into worship. But as we do, we're going to practice a few sacred acts, some sacraments that enable us to do that, that we are not just a belief-based faith, not just that we agree with some statements, but we actually put hands and feet to the things that we believe, that we practice them. And so we're going to come forward in a moment, and we're going to come to the Lord's table, to the communion, to the Eucharist, the gift and we're gonna receive something there that, that leads the rest of who we are through action into this reality that Jesus is our king. That Jesus is not only our priest, but he is our God. That Jesus is our savior who died for us and somehow sets us free and offers us new life. But as you do that, I also want you to see that there is an exchange It's not an investment for you to bring stuff so that you can get something out of Jesus. It's a free and generous exchange of intimacy that as you come to the table to receive of Jesus, to receive his goodness into you, to allow it to transform you, you also bring and you lay down on the table everything that you are. You you put it here. You say, Jesus, Lord, I'm putting this on the table. It's for you. Whatever you want of it, it's yours. I want you to receive this as worship. Communion is a symbol of us receiving the gift of God's presence and offering our lives as a gift to Jesus. So if you'd stand with me, and I'm gonna pray over the sacraments. I'm gonna invite you to come forward to give And to receive and maybe even to put a little bit more teeth on it to make this laying your whole self down a little bit more we need to lay down one of the most contemptuous symbols that we have in society of where our false worth comes from and that's our finances ah you thought we were going to get around without talking about it right but as you come forward we've got our boxes on either side and of course you can give online but i want you to do that to to give and to say jesus this is not me buying something from you i'm not paying for my salvation i'm not paying in order to get you to meet my list of demands i'm generously and freely laying down this symbol of my supposed worth and value and i'm putting it into your kingdom i'm taking it out of the empire and i'm putting it into your kingdom and saying it's yours whatever you want to do with this it's all yours it's all a gift So to come, to give of your your tithes and your offerings and then to receive the gift that Jesus has for you on the table, to lay it all down to him as an act of worship. So I'm going to pray over the sacraments and I'm going to invite you to come forward. Father, we thank you for this story of the Magi, that for us, They are these spiritual forbearers, these outsiders, these ones that technically shouldn't be on the inside of the story by all conventional wisdom. Yet there's something in them. They have this humility to recognize you as you truly are, to come and to lay it all at your feet, to worship you, and gain this expectation that you're going to show them who you are through worship, through sacrifice through humility. God, created us hearts of humility to come to you with everything that we have, to lay it at your feet, and to have this expectation that you're going to reveal yourself to us all over again. Jesus, if there's anything in each one of us where we have kept you small, where we're not impressed, where we take you for granted, Speak life over those little places in our heart right now through the Holy Spirit. Break us out of cynicism, of disillusionment, that we might step into the wonder of the real and living God that we find embodied in you. And as we come forward to lay down our gifts, I pray that you would bless us with this new revelation of your heart. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus come to give and come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at Ch. We hope you join us again soon.